Now on RTE Radio 1, Arts Tonight with Vincent Woods. On the programme, God in a Bottle, Straw Men, Sunbursts of Wood. Folk art in Britain, Ireland and the world. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. The term folk art is a contentious one, hard to define, elusive in its possibilities and too often inserted as a minor footnote in art history. The artwork made by untrained women and men over centuries and in every culture and society, some of it craft-based, some of it practical and functional, more of it surreal and beyond simple explanation, is often the subject of neglect and prejudice from the official art world. To quote the artist Jeff McMillan, one of the curators of the exhibition we consider tonight, for many people, folk is a four-letter word. That exhibition is British folk art at Tate Britain in London, the first exhibition of its kind in a major art institution in Britain, or to the best of my knowledge, in Ireland. It's a fascinating insight into centuries of work made by sailors, farmers, patchers, soldiers, women and men, some anonymous, some known and some even famous are celebrated. And its bold sweep and assertion of the abiding significance of this artwork raises fundamental questions about the nature of art and artistic value and the need to reappraise established hierarchies within the art world. Incidentally, the exhibition features a number of remarkable objects believed to have links to Irish workers in the north of England in the late 19th century. So-called God-in-bottle artefacts, possibly votive, and we'll hear more about those later. We've been to Tate Britain to see the exhibition. I met curator Martin Myrone, who first told me about the idea behind the show and the decision to put it on at this time. Well, British Folk Art is an exhibition, or at least a topic, that we've been talking about at the Tate for quite a number of years. Um, when the Tate Gallery of Old became Tate Britain um, at the beginning of the millennium in 2000-2001, there are a number of areas that we wanted to think about which fall beyond our traditional collecting remit or our, collect- our exhibition programme, but which clearly represent important aspects of British art. Medieval sculpture, um, 18th century neoclassical sculpture, caricature, comic art. And we've been picking away at these topics through the temporary exhibition programme over the years. Folk art was something that we talked about for a long time and we've sensed that over those 10 years and really over the last kind of t- couple of decades there's a growing sense of interest, growing sense of momentum behind folk art as an area of interest, particularly for artists. And also that we're more open-minded about what we expect to see in an art gallery. This isn't an exhibition of classical oil paintings on canvas or sculpture made out of bronze and, and marble. There's a whole array of different media here. Um, and I think we're, we're all kind of more prepared now to enter an art gallery and see things made out of bone or <laughs> raggedy-looking bits of wood or textiles or, or leather and, and be surprised and, 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 and be perhaps kind of more open-minded than we once were about what counts as art and what can count as art in an art gallery. And of course, as we enter the gallery spaces here, uh, you're immediately met by this wall of uh, extraordinary objects. And again, the scale is, is, is very, very striking. Yeah. Um, and I suppose it's a, an example of how folk art meets um, the utilitarian and... Yeah. and uh, had often had uh, a very real function in, yeah. in life. Tell me about what, what we see on that wonderful yellow wall. The, the, the opening wall of the exhibition, the thing that you see as you, as you walk through the doors is this vividly coloured yellow wall um, uh, with uh, an array, a grid of oversized objects set against it. Um, objects that were originally um, trade signs. They would have served as trade signs and mainly the 18th, 19th, some early 20th century objects here. Um, so that if you walk down the street, um, you would know 
there was a, a tea shop or a locksmith or pawnbrokers or a pharmacy or whatever it might be um, up ahead of you. Um, um, they date to the period when of course, literacy levels were not high um, and so uh, uh, it was necessary to, to kind of visually signal your trades and services um, in an urban context. And this opening wall is really a, a sort of a statement of intent about the exhibition as a whole because it is, it's not to say what you'd expect to see in an art gallery. It's a, <laughs> so a giant a, teapot, yeah, a giant a, key. A four and a half metre high wall with these um, enormous objects, a six foot long key, uh, a full size bear uh, made of plaster, uh, a glove which is about five times the, the, the expected size. Um, there's a, two enormous boots, one rugby boot and one black gentleman's boot, uh, which are, um, I'm told by the curator of the shoe collection at Northampton, where these come from, um, are size 74. So it's possible. Uh, that's that's uh, when uh, European size 74. Because it is possible to, to work out what size the boot is on the basis of its actual dimension. It's a real working shoe, but made to advertise skill and advertise the, the, the business of the shoemaker who, who, who invented it. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, 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 this wall of trade science serves a number of purposes. It is, it's meant to be visually striking, and it's been very important to understand that the show has taken the shape it has done by working with the artist Jeff McMillan. There are three of us curating this show, two of us curators, but Jeff, the artist, is, is really important in giving a kind of creative and imaginative and visual sense to this exhibition. We're not setting out a, a, a museological store here. This is not a, a, a show about strict definitions or strict categories. Um, it's rather about opening these objects up Offering these objects art, uh, offering these objects up in a visually striking way, and inviting everybody who comes into the show to look at them and enjoy them, and also to think, well, what are they? And perhaps be slightly mystified, and perhaps be slightly overawed or confused. And uh, these oversized trade signs do exactly that because, you know, on the one hand, they are. It seems like they're extremely obvious that what they are, because it's a big teapot, it's a big lock. You can see them as objects very immediately. On the other hand, you know, why does it exist? Why is it that big? Um, uh, there's and a touch of Alice in Wonderland almost. Yeah, yeah, with the, the, the huge exactly hat, we the key, the teapot. Uh, uh, it reminded me of uh, something a friend of mine years ago, I think, coined the phrase folk surrealism in relation yes, to uh, yeah. poetry, actually, the, and particular Gaelic poetry in yeah. Ireland. And this made me think of, of, yeah. of the surreal nature of yeah. objects that are made within the folk tradition. I think that's really important. And, and another thing that this Wall of Trade Science does is it, is it, it, it announces objects which are it announces the way that these objects are displaced from their current home context. I mean, they're displaced several times. They're displaced from the street where they served a function originally, and then they've been retained generally in social history museums or local history museums or rural life museums, I mean, collections about social history rather than about art necessarily. And then you transfer them into an art gallery and they become something else again. Um, and they become sculptural objects. Mm. You start looking at how they're made and how you read them as artefacts. Uh, a very effective piece as as we come in, yeah. uh, and uh, it looks like it could have been made yesterday, yeah. but it goes back to the 18th. It's this wonderful quilt made by a, a couple who were engaged to be married. Yeah, this is exhibit. One of the very first things that you see as you enter the exhibition is a, is a quilt made by um, uh, Herbert Bellamy and his wife-to-be, Charlotte, in the year or so of their engagement before getting married in 1891. Um, and it's like a lot of the objects in this show. Um, for me, as an, as an art historian, I'm trained in 18th century painting. That's my background. Um, the experience of going to museums up and down the country, uh, across across Britain, and uh, going there on daily business, or usual Tate business, going to look at a Gainsborough watercolour or John Martin painting, whatever it might be, but also encountering objects in those collections, which, as an historian, you're very 
ill-prepared to deal with because they don't fit the, the categories of media or of periodization that we bring to bear as art historians. Um, and often they have a quality of, it's not so much timelessness, it's, it's a kind of an awkwardness in relation to our normal sense of time or of history, that things which are very old um, can appear very modern, things which are actually very modern can appear much older than they are. And this is, is an absolutely exemplary case of that. It's a, um, a quilt um, uh, which, is, uh, which is in storage for most of its life and um, handed over by the maker's descendants to Norfolk Museums in the, in the 1980s. So it's retained, it's an incredibly vivid colour scheme of gold and blue and red and green and white um, and it represents in five bands almost almost hieroglyphic um, almost kind of a Syrian or Egyptian looking mm. um, uh, arrangement of everyday objects and what's wonderful here is that uh, it's incredibly kind of formal and uh, I mean, primitive in 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 the, in the sense that we you know think of, of archaic art, but it's also about modernity. It's about modern life. It's about a couple reflecting on life in late Victorian England and all the material things that were available to them. So there are teapots and furniture. Um, there's music scores. There's uh, chest of drawers. There's items of clothing. There are all the things that would populate Pe- their lives. And, horse and, and then there are you know, references to the world. There are you know figures of uh, uh, figures in foreign costume and. Uh, um, uh, and just random. And, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. But then at the heart of it, most strikingly, there's this um, vividly coloured little uh, vignette of Ali Sloper um, falling over on the ice. And Ali Sloper with his red nose is the great cartoon character of the late, 18th, uh, late 19th century, the late 1800s. It could be um, something from the Beano. It, could be, it is, yeah. So yes. It's very much a precursor of the Beano. And, and Sloper is part of a, a mass media culture. So uh, this object we wanted near the beginning of the exhibition because it is so striking, because it immediately opens up the possibility of just kind of slipping between the categories mm. that we normally use in our exhibitions. So it's old or it's new or it's 18th century, it's 19th century. This, kind of, this is somehow ancient and modern and contemporary all at the same time. Um, and it also confronts some of those, I think perhaps rather tired myths about folk art, that it's nostalgic, mm. that it's ruralist, that it's backward looking. This is art made by, you know, in an everyday context by ordinary people, but it's not about looking back. It's about engaging with the modern world and it's about living your life and creating something which is really original and visually striking um, to ornament your life, um, but not hide away from modernity. And not, and not, um, it's also not about kind of national identity or some deep-rooted sense of you know, cultural volkishness. This is, this is about you know, people in, a, in an everyday setting um, creating something which is very idiosyncratic but also um, um, very visually powerful. Can we look at one or two pieces that that took my eye as I as I walked around? And uh, suppose again, you, you said that it was very difficult, and in a way, you almost didn't want to make a strict definition of of folk art in relation to this. But uh, I presume that the three of you, you know, yourself and and Ruth and Jeff, in, yeah. in sitting down to discuss it, came up with with a loose category that yes, that might yeah, encompass yeah. It, the possibilities yeah, of it. Yeah, well, and it's broadly, well, one of the key things is that we always wanted to show objects that had some sort of collecting history behind them, right? That's why we're not showing contemporary mm. material, not going out doing field work in any literal sense and finding things either in fields or, or, or elsewhere and putting them on a pedestal and saying, oh, that's, that's folk art. We're, we're choosing things which have been uh, preserved in the past because maybe because primarily they had some social history interest, but also because um, uh, they were interesting as objects. And that interest as objects, I think, 
you know, leads leads lends them um, a kind of history. History is, is, is an aesthetic artifact as well. So, um, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to reflect where it's appropriate about the history of bygones and the history of social history collecting and the history of rural life collecting and the way folk art has been invented as a category at various points as well. Um, at the same time, we were never going to be able to lay out an encyclopedic show, right? So, working with Jeff, we really wanted to assemble objects that we hoped would be meaningful and interesting together, but not try and do everything, right? not try and represent every region or every nation, and not try and represent every medium. Um, and that means that we've had the same conversation again and again, all through the run-ups of the show, and we've had it a few times since, where we're talking to somebody, we say, we're doing this show, British folk art, and they'll say, well, are you including? And you can almost fill in the, yes. the dots. You know, <laughs> yes. are you including knitting? Are you including ironwork? Are you including carousel horses? Are you including um, scrimshaw? Including this? Okay. Actually, there's lots of things we're not including. Uh, but we're not also saying that this is a closed book. This is very much no. It very much uh, feels like the, the start of something yeah. and a really significant marker of, yeah. of something that has existed. The, this wonderful sunburst, this wooden carving, mm. it reminded me of of something from my own place in in Ireland, in in County Leitrim. It was a beautiful, it was a stone carving of a sunburst on right. the grave of a young girl who died during the famine, and right. her father was a stonemason, and carved this really simple and very elegant uh, half sunburst yeah. on on the side yeah. of this vertical tombstone, yeah. uh, and. Whenever I see a sunburst, I'm reminded of that. And in a sense, that's the power of some of this art as well, yeah, is that it, that it carries, a, I think, so much. I mean, that, that's a lovely artefact. That's from the Museum of Cambridge, um, which was formerly the Cambridge and County Folk Museum. They recently stopped being a folk museum and became something else. Same collection, but they've got it's an interesting move in itself. Um, and that, like a number of the objects in the show, um, we're not quite sure what it is, actually. <laughs> um, uh, the Museum of Cambridge was formed through gifts from local people, generally, who were offering up objects that reflected country life and county life. Um, this was um, given to the museum, um, uh, salvaged from a house where it was in use as a shelf, and was given as a medieval carving. Um, I showed this to one or two folk art specialists. I think it's medieval. They looked at the shape of it, and it's a kind of slightly wonky um, rectangle. There's a proper name for that, you know. <laughs> I'm doing it with my hands. That's not very helpful. It's kind of wonky, and it's got a ribbon as well as a starburst. It's got a, something is missing off the front there. Um, and the suggestion is that well, maybe it's actually part of a ship's carving because you see those shaped panels at the rear end of a of a, of a ship in you know 18th century kind of classic design. Um, and anyway. Does that matter? No. Now, that's an interesting thing, because in a museum, what we always do is we walk across, look at the label, uh, what, you know, who made it, mm. what date is it, what culture does it come from, and then we stand back and we look at the object again. It's, oh, well, that must be really good, or I'm not, I don't like Egyptian stuff, and you walk away. Um, uh, we obviously have the normal labels in the show, mm. but we have a lot more question marks, a lot more gaps on, the, on these labels than you ever would do with a conventional art show. Uh, and that object is, is a wonderful carving, um, it's become all the more wonderful by age, the effects of age, and bits have dropped off, and it's worn, and it's darkened, and it's distorted and changed, and it's taken on a new character. Mm. Um, and you know, does it actually matter whether we know it's medieval, or whether it's 19th century or 18th century, or whether it's a ship's carving, or whether it's something else? 
Um, it kind of matters. So but much it, and this is, yeah, it, I mean, it, has, yeah. it has taken on extra layers of yeah. beauty somehow in that process yeah. of ageing and maybe, as you say, that kind of mystery around it. Mm-hmm. Somebody I didn't know, uh, the, his, the work um, of, of George Smart here, yeah. and it's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's really rather wonderful yeah. and I suppose again evokes so many landscapes of, yeah. of, of Britain um, and uh, I suppose I was particularly taken by these wonderful it's that series little, of six little, red uh, yeah, grid of yes uh, uh, could be goose women by, goose women by George Smart yeah. riding hood there's the assumption there's often the assumption that folk art is anonymous right? and that, in the line behind that there's a uh, one of the big contests within thinking about folk art is uh, a question of is folk art the expression of a collective unconscious right is it the expression of a culture in that anthropological sense or is folk art the expression of an individual creative mind is it about the idiosyncratic and the eccentric um, and there's broadly speaking a kind of a European peasant art model and an American folk art model um, both those definitions are in play in the show um, neither of those definitions really become simply dominant in Britain anyway um, 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 but uh, and and both those ideas can actually be tested out and challenged anyway um, in connection with and the each can be true of, of yeah, course as well yeah. but again the imagination at work here mm. no matter you know where this comes from it is so strong mm. and and so vivid and one uh, set of objects in particular you know I want to talk about these uh, gods in in yep. a bottle uh, and a possible link to Ireland uh, and Irish tradition in that it's believed these were made by uh, Irish workers in in the north of England in in the late 19th century. I have to say, I've never seen anything like them. They're extraordinary. Uh, It doesn't matter who made them. They're they're remarkable objects. Um, And uh, tell me what's known about them. Well, it, de- it depends on who you ask, really. Um, we've assembled a group of five of these gods in a bottle, from, all from Beamish Museum, um, and all which seem to date from the late 19th century um, and associated with the north of England. Um, and they are standard spirit bottles um, uh, filled with water, and in the water are suspended uh, very intricate arrangements of tools, uh, machines, and... Um, uh, crucifixion imagery. <laughs> so these are kind of shrines, but also reference working life, um, reference working life of the mills and the working life of a blacksmith in one case. And um, we know from a label on one of these bottles, not one of the ones that we're showing here, but one of these bottles that it was created, or at least associated with a, a, an Irish uh, labourer working on, um, I think it was on the canals, on the roads in the north of England um, in, in, the, in the late 19th century. So there is that tradition that they are kind of votive ob- objects mm. by, um, created by uh, Roman Catholic Irish workers you know, away from home and whittling or creating these things in private. Uh, this room, again, very, very striking, and the, the sea, these nautical figures, huge, huge, literally at times, yeah. uh, in, in the room, and ships' prows and the beauty of these objects that were made, yeah. uh, often women, but not, not uh, exclusively so, uh, for, for the prows of, of, of ships. Uh, where did these come from? I presume from maritime museums around Britain, yeah, for the most but, part? Yeah, we've assembled a, a room full of ships' figureheads, but, and also some trade signs which take the form of carved figures, which have come from uh, maritime museums, uh, but also uh, city museums. So there's a number of objects from Bristol, from um, Birmingham, uh, uh, Portsmouth and Chatham have been very important lenders here. Um, figureheads are, have been collected and displayed for you know, 
last couple of hundred years is a form of art of one kind or another, a form of decoration. Um, they've been preserved and, and, and thought of as having sculptural quality. But um, uh, they're interesting when you think of, think of them in relation to the idea of folk art and that they are, they're almost the exemplar of folk art mm -hmm. in that they're bright and bold and vigorous and fun and funny and they've got cross-eyes and big beards or, you know, funny faces and they're kind of cartoonish and crude and energetic. How was that? You think of it as being, you know, naive and, and... But they're the products of very skilled craftsmen and they're products of you know, working yards that would pass on the skills through generations. So most figures, you know what ship they were made for, you know when, there may be design surviving relating to, 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 to their, their production um, and you know the kind of industry behind them. So... You know, they are very immediate, but also things with, with genuine histories. And you could say, well, you know, are they folk art? Because they're not idiosyncratic and they're not you know, personal in that sense. They are part of a, an industrial and military culture. Um, uh, the major figure here is, is this enormous uh, figure of Calcutta, who uh, stands about four metres high. Um, and there is another instance where this is a show about British folk art, but this is a mm. figurehead made yes. for a British ship, but in India, um, from Indian hardwood, uh, presumably by Indian craftsmen. So um, uh, it, isn't a, it isn't a kind of parochial yeah. version of folk art, rather it's about uh, a, a broad, vibrant, various almost limitless culture of, of making. And, and again, how, you know, the influences, how one culture influences another mm. and, and changes things along the yeah. way. Um, it's, it's, a very, it's a very striking room, and I suppose, again, uh, some of the objects here linking to some of the paintings made by sailors um, and uh, a number of tapestries as well. I mean, you, you mm. had sailors really working uh, yeah. with material, whatever materials they had. And, and again, uh, this will actually bring us on to, to another artist I want to look at, and mm. the whole idea of uh, the value of men work yeah. and women's work right. yeah. Uh, yeah. and what's craft yeah. and there's, what's there's, art. There's a, there's a knowing moment of there's a contrast here as you walk through a room of these brightly coloured oversized uh, hugely sculptural and huge figures and you turn the corner mm. into this little red room of embroideries by Mary Linwood. Which almost seems domestic by sure. contrast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when you look at a very beautiful yeah. Uh, very, and very particular. Uh, and what's fascinating when you read her story is that she was fated for a yeah. while and then effectively excluded yeah. from, from art yeah, history. But, but, but Mary Linwood was one of the major names of the London art world in the early 19th century. She ran a one-woman exhibition in Leicester Square, which uh, ran for 40 years. Like that. And the gallery still held her name after her death. And there was the Linwood Gallery being used for other purposes in Leicester Square for, for many years after that. Um, uh, but she's absent from the story of British art. She's absent from art history because what she created, what she put together, this gallery of 60-odd pictures, were embroidered copies of old master and modern British paintings. So she's working in textiles and she's working as a copyist. And that's been a problem both for art history, because art history demands originality, and it expects or it assumes that oil painting is the kind of apex of any practice... Um, and um, uh, and she's a copyist, and that kind of you know, makes it makes it awkward. But at the same time, she's not a folk artist because she's working with fine art imagery in a very deliberate way. Um, and she was commercially successful, and she was very public, um, and was part of a tourist culture 
of, 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 of galleries and, and, and places to visit in London. So I think probably unfairly neglected um, uh, in several different ways. Um, and the works are extraordinary yeah. objects. Uh, and they don't reproduce well. This is, this is the problem, I think. One of the problems is that you see a black and white image of this, or even a good colour image of this. This is a, a copy of uh, Rembrandt's mother reading the Bible. So an old lady crouched in this kind of dramatically um, lit scene. Um, if you see this in reproduction, it just looks like a slightly bad copy of a of an oil painting. When you see it in the flesh, you see what she's doing with specially, specially coloured uh, 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 wools that she worked with, varying her stitch length to emulate the direction and the strength of the strokes of paint, or to recreate a sense of, of uh, the, uh, the dynamism of the painted surface through wool. And she manages to and do it. And, it, it is, and they're sculptural. They're sculptural not. objects. There's a Pomeranian dog um, where, obviously, we're not encouraging him to touch this object. It's behind glass. Yeah. But you really you want to be able to touch this object because it's a dog. Mm. It isn't just a painting of a furry dog. It's a dog which is, <laughs> which is actually like furry. Looks, so. I mean, I was going to say it feels furry, but looking at it, it feels furry. Um, uh, quite remarkable. And again, going on from here uh, to, I suppose, the, the, the last room of... Of work as such, then we have that another room then with, with uh, I suppose, with a, a look at it all and trying to put a context on it. But uh, here again, we see, I suppose, the value of of men's work, perhaps. Yeah. But it's this, I have to say, I find very, very moving. Yeah, this, uh, this, this is, particular uh, piece. This is, uh, it dominates the last um, last gallery of the, of, of the exhibition. Uh, it's a quilt comprising, uh, I think it's 10,000 individual um, pieces. Um, made by Crimea, wounded Crimean soldiers in the 1850s, um, and it's an almost entirely abstract pattern. There's a little little elements of insignia, but they're very insignificant compared to what you see, which is this purely geometric pattern. It's about seven feet square, um, triangles and diamonds in red and purple and white and gold <laughs> and black. That's the, 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 this is textile taken from um, uh, a kind of standard military issue, um, and we're told by the conservator who worked on this that this is thick fabric. This is tough fabric. This is not nimble work, this is not elegant work, this is hard work. Piecing together these 10,000 pieces of, of, of textile would have been physically demanding. Um, Crimean War soldiers and soldiers later in the 19th century were encouraged to take up textile art um, as a form of therapy, um, in that sense of repetition and working with pattern and in a kind of laborious way, uh, easing physical and mental trauma. Um, uh, but here, we very knowingly place this very ornamental, decorative, decorative object um, against these three large, similarly sized quilts um, in bold red and white patterns uh, here in a white cube space of an art gallery looking you know, very much like abstract paintings mm, of the most they do, yes. um, <laughs> abstract kind. Um, but uh, uh, we know created by women. Yeah. Right? So you have bold, aggressive, red and white abstract imagery made by women and you have this ornamental, colourful, vibrant textile made by men and not just any men, I'm kind of real men, <laughs> men back from war. Um, and so whilst what we're commenting on or what we're offering these objects up are, are as bits of abstract design and things which you can appreciate as kind of artistic experiences in the context of an art gallery, there is a story behind them as well and there's a context for them and there's a, there's a we hope, a sort of questioning of some of the assumptions that, that you might bring to bear what kind of response have you had so far to the show? 
It's been extremely favourable. I think there's a sense that this is a show which, which has been waiting to happen for a long time. Um, we, as curators, and working with Jeff McMillan as an artist, have been very careful not to set ourselves up as you know, the absolute authority or say, this is the story of folk art, and this is where it begins and this is where it ends. This is very much what Jeff calls a proposition. We're offering this up. Um, and we've been very careful and very fortunate to work with curators up and down the country who have allowed us to borrow really special objects. Um, and hopefully the show is more about creating a context for those objects and a setting which is a quite particular kind of setting, an art gallery setting, um, which is going to you know, give people a chance to see these objects on a national stage, but also um, uh, hopefully lead to still more interest and, 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 and a greater recognition of, of how rich and interesting um, uh, are these collections and how there are these art treasures, really, um, in collections which might be thought of as mainly a resource for social life or rural life or local history. Martin Myrone there at Tate Britain in London and that exhibition, British Folk Art, continues at Tate Britain until the 31st of August. Coming up, curator Ruth Kenny, who worked on the Tate Show on folk art as wallflower at the dance of Western civilization, and US ethnologist Henry Glassy on the enduring power and significance of what is termed folk art in world culture. You're listening to Arts Tonight. We're discussing folk art, what it is, what it's not and why it isn't given more recognition and acknowledgement in the framework of art history. Earlier we heard from Martin Myrone, one of the three curators of the show British Art History at Tate Britain in London. And joining me now is curator Ruth Kenny, who also worked on the show with Martin Myrone and artist Jeff Macmillan. Also in studio is US ethnologist Henry Glassy, whose books include Turkish Traditional Art Today, The Potter's Art and The Spirit of Folk Art on the Gerard collection at the Museum of International Folk Art in Santa Fe in New Mexico. He has also made an enormous contribution to the understanding of Irish folk culture and material culture with books like All Silver and No Brass, Passing the Time in Ballymanone and The Stars of Ballymanone. Ruth Kelly, tell me first of all about your involvement in the British Folk Art Exhibition at the Tate. Um, well, I started at the Tate about two years ago and this was uh, one of the main projects that I worked on um, from the very beginning. Um, I think it had been something that Martin was thinking about for um, at least 10 years, um, but it was about two years ago that we really started to think that um, now was a really good time um, to try and bring folk art really kind of into into the... Um, into the big uh, into, institutions and into sure, the mainstream. Sure, yeah, into cent- in centre stage a bit more. Um, and we thought it was an interesting proposition to put a show like that on at the Tate, which is very much known um, for kind of fine art, um, sculpture, painting. And we thought it might be quite an interesting juxtaposition uh, to bring folk art into the Tate. And indeed it is. Um, can you cast any more light at all on those remarkable God in a bottle objects? Um, is it likely, as it seems, that some of them at least have links to our origins in Ireland through Irish railroad workers? That's right, yeah. I think um, the God in the Bottles are really um, some of the most intriguing and powerful uh, objects in the show. Um, they're related, at least in form, uh, to the far more common ships in a bottle. Um, in that they comprise of a very small figurative wooden uh, ornaments uh, suspended in water inside, in this case, whiskey bottles, but often medicine bottles. Um, their function um, is a little, still a little uncertain. Uh, we think they were probably used as a form of good luck charm or had some kind of talismanic or ritualistic uh, purpose. And as you say, they seem to be associated, associated with the uh, Irish diaspora. 
particularly in the north of England, um, connected to mining communities um, and construction communities. Um, and uh, as I say, they, they really have a, a quite a strange kind of power. Quite often they uh, include religious uh, tokens, but there's a strange kind of superstitious aura around them as well, I think. And it's it's that mix, I think, which is uh, particularly uh, particularly appealing. I think you'd seen some examples in the Museum of Irish Country Life at, in Castlebar and Mayo. That's right. Yeah, that was, um, it was the Museum of Country Life that first introduced me to them as a, as a concept. Um, and I had a long discussion with the curator Rosa Meehan there about them and um, their possible um, uses. Um, and then when we went um, to the um, Museum of um, Living Art in Beamish in County Durham, um, I came across more examples there. And again, they weren't exactly sure what they were. Um, and I became very, very intrigued with them. So we ended up with four examples from Beamish uh, in, in the exhibition. And I think they're one of the, one of the exhibits um, in the show that people have really um, responded to. Henry, you're familiar with these God-in-a-bottle objects, these, these, these talismans and, and, and coming, I suppose, linked, as Ruth was saying, to the ship in a bottle, but they're pretty much in, in many, many cultures. Yes, I, I saw them in, in the wonderful catalogue of the exhibition, and so I was familiar. But I, I really don't, I don't know of any place that they aren't found where there are bottles. The, most commonly, they have a crucifix in them, usually without a figure on it, and then the, all the instruments of the passion. So they're very common in Latin America. The United States has a great many, generally in Catholic communities. I don't know of any that are Irish at all in the United States, but that's only an accident. I'm not in any way questioning the Irish origin of these. But you find them in Italian communities and in Spanish communities, particularly in the United States and in Latin America. And then all over the Mediterranean, they're also very common but by far the most common images in them are a crucifix without a figure and the instruments of the passion. And so I think there's a, certainly a parallel technological or a technique parallel with ships in a bottle. But I think in both cases what you've got is bottles and a curiosity and a clever menu, person with clever hands that makes something that's, that may be talismanic and it may just be ultimately decorative. The, the, the study and consideration of so-called folk art has been central to your work over many decades. How would you define or seek to define folk art? <laughs> well, I think that's, that's too, maybe too big a question, Vincent, but I'll nonetheless, I'll nonetheless try. I think that, that one of the things that's interesting about the proposition of folk art is that there are a lot of different definitions that are operating at the same time. And what instead of, instead of being critical, what I'd prefer to do is to say that all of them are valid within particular contexts. And so that one of the reasonable definitions of folk art is, seems to be the one that's operating, but I'm stepping out out of in territory that I don't seems to have been operating in the Tate show, which is a kind of compensatory vision of folk art that that folk art is generally uh, in in that vision generally of the past. It generally features uh, painting and sculpture because those are dominant media in uh, high art. It tends to be well of of the past, not the distant past, because if you if you look at medieval art and folk art, you really can't. It, it falls apart. So you really have to have within high Western art, you have to have had the development of a of a naturalism. And once you've got naturalism, then you have the, uh, the sort of the possibility of an opposition to naturalism, which would be abstract on the one hand or, or perhaps uh, naive on the other. And so there's, there's, a, there's a whole set of features that govern one, it seems to be, perfectly reasonable vision of folk art, which is to say that folk art is a, is a way for us to compensate and to include things that have been excluded. And in the United States, that matter, the, that very often takes a kind of ethnic turn. That is to say that there, there's a kind of sense of there being a white fine art and black and Hispanic and so on, uh, folk arts. That's not as important in the, the English collection. 
But I think that what you have is a, a vision of compensation that starts out from the conventions of high art and then seeks for things that are parallel or in some way related, perhaps in a distorted way. Ultimately, I would say that definition of folk art is a function of modernism and that what one is looking for is things that are, are appealing in a modernist aesthetic but that weren't created by, in fact, modernist artists. You reminded me of Yeats's quite brilliant and acute observation on, on folk art. His, his definition in 1893 was that folk art was the oldest aristocracy of thought, which is a very different vision. That is to say that in, that position would say that it isn't that folk art is the aberrant form, but that high art is the aberrant form. And I think, that's a, I think that would be a fairly interesting position to pursue. So, but one definition, I think, and a perfectly reasonable definition, is that folk art is, is a term that's used by people to compensate for the particular qualities of high art, but that nonetheless always relate to what we conceive of as being high art. The, the key to that would be to feature the media of painting and sculpture. Ruth, in your essay, in, in the very handsome book accompanying the, the, the show in the Tate, you quote somebody I hadn't heard of, uh, Jane Callor, on fo- defining folk art as a catch-all category for misfits, uh, wallflowers at the dance of Western civilization. It's a very striking phrase. And there's, again, a great deal of truth in it, isn't there, in, in terms of how art history has created hierarchies of value and how fine art, sculpture and painting in particular, are elevated as being the most important. I, yeah, I think it's a, a very um, kind of resonant description. Um, and uh, as Henry says, folk art is a very slippy car- uh, category to uh, try and grapple with. Um, but I think as we researched the show, we began to realise that really the division between folk art and high art is essentially a false one. And I think a lot of it goes back um, to the um, establishment of the Royal Academy in 1769, Um when textile art, shell art, uh, or baubles, as the Royal Academy uh, designated them, uh, were banned from the uh, Academy annual exhibitions. And I think that prejudice um, against um, art that isn't painting and sculpture um, is... um, um, has been a kind of remarkably tenacious one. And I think what it really boils down to is a question of materials, in a sense, in that if something's um, in stone or bronze or oil on canvas is accepted as um, kind of fine art and within the canon, whereas if it's needlework or uh, made out of bone or leather or any of the other um, kind of wild and wonderful materials that we showcase in the exhibition, um, it tends to be, as you say, um, kind of shoved towards the margins of what we think of as proper, in inverted commas, art. Talk to me about this concept of so-called identity art and how it links again to what we call folk art. Mm, I think it's a really interesting way of looking at folk art. Um, and that, uh, The kind of concept of identity art really privileges um, the characteristics of the makers um, in a way that perhaps proper, proper or fine art doesn't. Um, but in an interesting paradox, um, most of the art that we feature in the exhibition uh, is by anonymous makers. Um, and I think there is um, kind of generally accepted... Um, Actually, the most folk art is anonymous, um, but we try to kind of complicate this in a sense in the show by uh, picking out um, three um, named makers, uh, the most famous of which is Alfred Wallace, uh, which I think anyone uh, anyone coming to the show would um, instantly recognise his name, um, but also um, Mary Linwood um, and uh, George Smart, who are perhaps uh, lesser known, just to kind of complicate the idea that um, uh, folk art is always anonymous um, and 
uh, I think this was a very important part of the show for us um, to try and get away from some of the stereotypes about folk art and With open also it cha- up. Challenging people's presumptions and, and again the, those easy categorizations. Henry, you, you studied the work of potters in Turkey and Bangladesh and in the southern states of the US um, and here what we might term folk culture or literal, literary architectural and, and made in many forms uh, in straw, in wood, in, in stone and in word indeed. Um, looking at the straw King Alfred in, in Tate Britain, um, I was reminded of the, of the straw mummers' costumes of Fermanagh that you conjured back into public consciousness through your work mm-hmm. in Ballymanone. And you would say, I think, as well, that the dresser in those Fermanagh kitchens is a perfect example or was a perfect example of folk art in practical use. That's true. I, that, uh, that allows me to think uh, about a lot of different things at the same time. But let, let me, as a, as, a, as a way of thinking about the relationships that, between this exhibition and other recent exhibitions of folk art, I think it's very interesting that in the United States, because of the very questions that have been so well raised already, uh, the, the focus is now entirely on the present. And so it's, it's not a matter of searching for the identities of a few makers of things in the past, but basically contemporary study of folk art in the United States is about living people and living people only. And there are a lot of things that unfold from that proposition. One of them is that you begin to not only understand all the people, you understand the networks of people. And so that they, the networks that people, creators are gathered into – and I've built a very large exhibition of Turkish art and another one of Bangladeshi art in, in this frame, that you get the, the networks that people are built into, then you understand what they think of as being art. And so that what I think the, the really exciting thing that folk art can do is cause us to question the deepest proposition of art. So that if you go into the com- kind of communities that I've studied, you find painting and sculpture generally not important. And certainly worldwide, ceramics and textiles are the main genres of people's creation. But it also is completely possible to think of it in a different way, which is the way that we tend to think of it, at least in the United States at this moment. And that is to say, you enter a community and you find out where their excellence is. And so that excellence might not even ever invest itself in any kind of material object at all. There's a was a really wonderful essay by Tony Lucas many, many years ago who raised the question, why is it that in Ireland there's almost no folk art? And the reason is because in Ireland this every human being is born with the capacity to create. Every human being can be an artist. But the difference is that in social context, people are bent in one direction or another. And Lucas said that in Ireland, people are bent towards the oral and towards the musical. That would be the same thing of the, in the southern United States. That is, Irish people settle, <clears throat> settled in the mountainous regions of the south, and there, there's almost nothing that anybody would call folk art in the sense of being painting and sculpture, not even very much pottery, not even very much textiles, but fantastic musical ability. And so that you could compare Ireland and the southern United States as two places where traditional music developed into a very elaborate ensemble form, bluegrass in America, the you know, the... The uh, Boys of the Lock or, mm. or any group of ensemble of Irish musicians. And so that we in the study of folk art wouldn't care at all how people have decided to express themselves. But however they decide to express themselves, that's what we follow. And so that if, you, if you're very interested in the, in the traditions of the Appalachian region, you're going to come up with music. And if you're very interested in, in 
let's say Turkey, you're going to come up with calligraphy, and you're not necessarily going to, to arrive at any of the genres of art that are particularly important in Northwestern European art, that isn't to question that, nor is it to question the proposition of setting that as folk art, but rather it's just a very interestingly different possibility, and the, the issue of anonymity is one of those issues that's compelled me and my colleagues to be focusing entirely on the present, that is to say, looking at historical objects, you really can't ever know what the motives are and the purposes are and the reasons for creation are. But if you have con living people, you just talk to them. If you want to know what how people define art, you ask them how they define, define art. And everybody has a vision of art, but that art may, might just show up in ways that are surprising. That is, it might show up in, in the oral and the musical in Ireland, and it might show up in wholly different surprising media all over the world. Um, you wrote recently that the potters of North Carolina, with whom you spent some considerable time, make the most serious talk about the nature of art that one is likely to hear in the English language of our century. Uh, and that in large part because they're not academics, you say. That the, 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 the true, again, that's what you, the, this truthful statement, the stating of the purpose of wh what people do uh, is, is there to be heard if, if, if someone is there to listen. Well, I think that's true, but I also wouldn't think that this would be necessarily something that would be false to anybody. I, I think of a, a wonderful comment that Paul Clay made in his diaries. This was written during the First World War, saying that the thing that he was surprised by and disappointed in art history is that it didn't talk much about the actual making of things. That is, that there were objects that people considered, and then they, there were interpretations that were based on the objects. But the central act, Clay said, of making was the place where really he thought that art lived, not in evaluation and not in object. And what I've found in general is that if you can find actual makers, those actual makers, because of the act that needs to come into self-consciousness, that act of making is something that drives people very often to the deepest of philosophical thought. And so I've, I've definitely found that worldwide, that the people who are makers very often have, not everybody by any means, but there are a few people in any community of makers who have developed a self-consciousness of their creativity that allows me to say that they would outstrip any art historian at all in the theorizing of making. So that it isn't everything about it. There are other things that they might not be particularly aware of. They're not interested. They're not even interested. For example, the potters of North Carolina that I talked to, not even interested in connecting themselves to some kind of international movement, but they're desperately interested in what the process of making is about. And as a result of that deep meditation that comes about as a result of making on that wheel and making on that wheel and burning that clay and burning that clay, they come up with the deepest imaginable thoughts. And I think that's it's not peculiar by any means to North Carolina, but it, I think it is peculiar to makers. That is, I think that the, they, those are the people, that's why in, in general with no insult to art history, I generally find that artists are more interesting in talking about art than critics of art are talking. And I certainly have found that worldwide people, it has nothing to do with education. It has to do with the dedication deeply, the devotion to, to the creative act that causes people to be capable of amazing uh, abstract formulation. And so that, that that is, in my experience, something that's shared by makers, whether they have degrees in art history or whether they dropped out of high school, if they think deeply about, uh, about making it's one of the it's one of the glories of being able to study no criticism of, of any other kind of work. It's one of the glories of, of working with living people 
talking to folk artists themselves. Well, I think well, yep. for me, one of the really interesting things about the show in, in, in Tate Britain was that it, it made you uh, wonder about the process of making it, who these people were. And it, I think it, it, it will actually have that effect of making people stop to think about, about, that, about all of that. And I presume that was a huge part of the intent in, in putting the show together, Ruth. Absolutely. And I think um, um, interesting kind of reflecting on what Henry was saying, uh, we worked with an artist, Jeff McMillan, on the show. And I think that gave us a very um, particular take um, on the objects that we were looking at and we were very interested in illustrating this idea of process and the actual making of the objects. Um, so for example with the Mary Linwood tapestries we've shown one of them on the reverse um, and we uh, asked people not, uh, kind of lenders not to conserve um, the objects before they lent them to us because we wanted um, these signs of kind of making and of usage um, to be quite apparent uh, when they were on display. So for example with the ship's figureheads uh, we've displayed them so that you can see the unpainted wood inside and that you can see the various different layers um, of often quite thick um, house paint that's been applied to them over the years because it's this sense of intervention and this sense of um, perhaps not even just one single artist working on a on a piece but um, kind of generations of artists adding their own um, own layers um, to a, so to to an object um, so I think that was really important to us um, in in the preparation of the show. Uh, the pattern of time. Well, writing about the Tate exhibition in the Guardian newspaper, critic Jonathan Jones said, this is just a small taste of the truth that museums and stately homes hide. Show it all and turn the world upside down. I met Jonathan Jones at the British Folk Art Exhibition and he told me how he feels that there's a cultural snobbery around the whole concept of folk art, a perception that it's not real art. You very rarely see objects like this in a, in a national museum like Tate Britain, um, you see, you can find them if you go to local museums where they're treated as, you know, almost as curios, folklore, you know. Um, and and what's, it's really nice to see them treated here as, as art, as a, as a whole kind of world of artistic forms. Um, and also as things which, to me, contain ideas and symbols and myths and have stories behind them. Uh, I, th- I think that's really important, and that's uh, those are the things that you get by putting them in this kind of night. You know, really treating them as as proper art in inverted commas uh, just elevates something and allows you to look at it in a new way. Is, is there a need, in a sense, for for some kind of of national folk art? Not necessarily a museum, but gallery centre somewhere uh, where folk art can be celebrated and and contextualised in in many ways, perhaps. Yeah, that, 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 I think that would be um, a brilliant idea. Um, it's, I mean, I don't see, to be honest, at the same time, I think the Tate could probably include more of this, perhaps, in its normal collections and displays. Um, and the V&A, perhaps, um, could as well. I mean, you could, you know, this is definitely part, it clearly is... It, uh, there are lots of interesting questions too about British sort of identity and the stuff that they've included in this exhibition. It's actually quite subtle about what popular culture is and what it was. I, th- I think I think I think there's something about there's something slightly mysterious about the forms about that people and obviously there are abstract designs, there are abstract the examples of, of you know of, of weaving and fabric which are abstract and so that's and startling you know because that's not how you think of the past you know that's not how you think 19th century cottages decorated with bold abstract designs you know it's that's really interesting um and lots of 
little kind of personal things like um, pin cushions, heart-shaped cushions made for soldiers in, in wars, you know, and the, 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 the experiences of, of war are here and of, of people at home perhaps thinking about their loved ones abroad. Also things made by soldiers and sailors. Um, so there is a strangeness to it that I really like and that I really, I could have, you know, I could look at a lot more of, that there's some, in some ways, some of the, some of the things, um, you know, even something like just the giant boots, like boots from <laughs> cobbler shops, but there's something a bit kind of, kind of primitive and magical about it as if, you know, that there are folk stories behind some of these things and folk songs as well, you know, and that there is that, that world of... Um, and, yeah, and a sort of folk world. surrealism. I mean, that, that, yeah. that's very strong here as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I was uh, struck by, I was thinking, wondering as well, you know, I suppose a lot of your own writing uh, has been about the Renaissance and, and you know, it was Michelangelo, Leonardo, and you, you'd think of those great artists, but also wonderful craftsmen. I mean, they, 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 yeah. uh, and the power of that and the power of the people who made as well some of the things exactly, yeah. they conceived of. And somehow there's a little strain of all of that for me running yeah. running in this as well. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, if you go back to the Renaissance, I mean, just to digress a bit from this, um, there wasn't that division, really, um, between elite mm. and popular culture. Um, if you th- say Florence in the 16th century and when Michelangelo was at work there, was they had, you know, obviously had huge carnivals and, and festivals, festivals and processions, religious processions, but also more kind of pagan spring, rites of spring and things. You know, the whole year was structured in ritual, and that's what everywhere in Europe before, before, the, before the 19th century was, was like that, you know. And, and, and Renaissance artists used to... You know, it's all it's recorded in you know Vasari and things like that. But Renaissance artists used to not only do the paintings which survive, but they would make decorations for basically build carnival floats and you know huge costumes for 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 May Day celebrations. So some of the stuff here probably resembles things that that would have been made by artists as well in in somewhere you know like Renaissance Italy. And it's all part of this. It was part of the same world and you're seeing here the last when, when we look at the sort of 19th century and um, things here we, we, from the countryside you know we're looking at the last the last expressions of a culture that had gone on for hundreds if not thousands of years and that you know goes further back to uh, you know medieval um, will go back to medieval May Day events and things like that you know um, I think they've opened a window. I think they've opened a, a window on, on, a one, on a wonderful world, which actually, 50 years ago, people were very were, were discovering. You know, uh, radical historians, as I say, like E.P. Thompson, were discovering, trying to discover the culture of the the people, and and, and artists too, like Peter Blake, were interested in folk art. Today, it's it's become very unfashionable. Though again, there are some artists who are interested, like Jeremy Dalla and. Chris and Perry, um, but maybe it is it really. In fact, not maybe. It definitely is time for this stuff to be rediscovered again. And so, in that sense, this is a really kind of important exhibition, which I'd say it opens a window on on a lost world, which we we really need to rediscover. We really need to connect with the the, the secret traditions that are um, that are here.
critic Jonathan Jones there at the British Folk Art Exhibition at Tate Britain. Ruth Kenny, um, you make a very interesting point in your article for the Tate Exhibition book uh, that sceptical voices might say folk art as a category is largely middle class wish fulfilment, and this is something we've touched on, uh, while other people would argue that it still retains significant power. I have to say I belong firmly uh, to the latter group, but no matter what one's opinion, I presume you would say that a show like this one at the Tate raises important questions about art and identity and imagination and creativity and at the end of the day that discussion can only be good and valuable for for everybody. I think so, yeah. Um, As I said, we weren't trying to pin down folk art um, in this exhibition. It's not supposed to be a definitive survey of British folk art. It's really supposed to be a a provocation in a sense um, that we really want people uh, to visit the show and think about folk art. Room to open up the field more here in Ireland as well in, in terms of looking at, at, at folk art in Ireland. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting what Henry was saying about um, the fact that um, in Ireland I'm not sure we would really uh, call folk art folk art except in a, a kind of music and storytelling uh, tradition perhaps. But um, when I visited the Museum of Country Life, they have um, absolutely fabulous uh, folk art objects in their store there. And even uh, visiting country house collections uh, all over the country, there are definitely things there that uh, kind of follow a uh, visual tradition of folk art. Um, for example, the textile work in Bantry House or the wonderful Kilrodery Hunt in Kilrodery House, which is a, a fantastic oil painting um, which has had um, foxes and hounds um, pasted onto it, uh, tissue paper, foxes and hounds. So there is, I think there's a very kind of un- unexplored uh, visual side to folk art in Ireland uh, which definitely uh, definitely deserves a look A rich scene for us all to look at uh, Ruth Kenny Henry Glassy thanks to you both thanks also to Martin Myron at Tate Britain and Jonathan Jones of The Guardian and again British folk art runs at Tate Britain in London until the 31st of August and for anyone planning a trip to London this summer it's really worth a visit That's it from us for this season of Arts Tonight you can hear some of the highlights of the past months over the summer Mondays and I do hope you've enjoyed some of what we've brought you since last October. From me, Vincent Woods, and all of us on the programme, goodbye. Art Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods, was produced by Aileen O'Mara for Digital Audio Productions. You can listen back on the RTE Radio Player, available online at rte.ie.